This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. And I want to begin today by showing you an Orthodox icon. An icon of St. Euphrosinus the cook. Not a well-known Orthodox saint. St. Euphrosinus was a Palestinian monk in about the 9th century. And his obedience in the monastery was to be a cook. He was pretty much at the bottom of the ladder, and he was regularly kind of made fun of and abused by the other cooks. But he kept quiet. He kept his own counsel, patiently cooking meals for the monks who made fun of him. One of the priests in the monastery prayed that God would reveal to him the glories of paradise. And that night, that priest saw in a dream what paradise is like, and he contemplated this inexplicable beauty with fear and with joy. And then to his surprise, he realized that there was someone else in his vision with him. And lo and behold, it was the lowly cook, Euphrosinus. And the priest was amazed by this encounter of all the people in the monastery to see this lowly cook there in paradise with him. And he asked him, what are you doing here in my vision? And the cook replied, I'm here by the mercy of God. And the priest asked, would you be able to, to give me something, you know, kind of a memento from paradise? And the monk asked him, well, what would you like? And he asked for, he pointed to three luscious apples growing on a tree. And the monk, Euphrosinus, the cook, picked the three apples, put them in a cloth, and gave them to the priest, who then woke up. What an odd dream. What a strange 
vision, he thought. And then he looked over at his nightstand, and there was the cloth, and inside the cloth were three beautiful pieces of fruit emitting a wondrous fragrance. And the priest went down to the kitchen, and he found the monk, and he made him swear under oath, where were you the night before? And the cook smiled, and he said, I was in the same place you were. And the monk told them that the Lord, in fulfilling the prayer of the priest, had shown him paradise and bestowed the fruit on him through the lowly and unwitting, unworthy servant of God, Euphrosinus. Well, the priest, of course, went and told all the other monks that they had this treasure in their midst. Apparently, there was a spiritual giant toiling away in the kitchen who, unbeknownst to the rest of the monks, every night was going up and spending time with God in paradise. So in a body, all the monks, the abbot and everyone, trooped down to the kitchen to pay their respects to the monk and no doubt to ask him many questions of what he'd experienced. And the monk was gone. Where... Euphronius fled where he concealed himself for the rest of his life is unknown to history. But the monks always remembered that their monastic brother, Euphrosinus, had come upon paradise and that they, being saved by the mercy of God, would meet him there. This rather charming monk lived in the ninth century, and it's a shame that he did not exist in our own time. Because I feel that his experience was rather wasted. I mean, he could really have leveraged his trips to paradise. Euphrosinus the Cook Ministries. I picture in my mind's eye a giant air-conditioned tour bus with his face plastered across it, going throughout Egypt and North Africa, sharing his incredible testimony, his amazing experiences to stadiums filled with enraptured crowds. And no doubt he would be regularly appearing on television to sell his cookbook and specially blessed figurines of the apples of paradise. The poor saint's experience was sadly wasted, as indeed Paul's experience of paradise was sadly wasted. How Paul could have leveraged his journey to heaven as no doubt the super apostles, the false teachers who were coming in and trying to take over this church, were leveraging the spiritual experiences they had, or at least claimed to have. After all, it was only 14 years ago that Paul had had this incredible, mystical journey, journey cycling upwards to the heights of God. Oh, yes, Paul had a story or two that really would have dazzled the Corinthians and really would have shut the mouths out of these rival teachers. And I can picture Paul in the center of this church, the Corinthians gathered around him with their mouths hanging open, hanging on to every word as Paul detailed his ascent upwards, all the strange wheels within wheels and flaming angels he saw going up through worlds of the Spirit into the throne room of God. And I guarantee you, no one would have fallen asleep and toppled out of the window during that sermon. But Paul never shared what had happened in his spiritual journey. And there are experiences of God, encounters with Jesus, 
that are too sacred and that are too intimate to be shared with others. And talking about those things somehow would, would cheapen the whole experience. Imagine being caught up to heaven for an interview with the exalted Son of God and pulling out your smartphone just to document the process so you can post it for others. And perhaps it's not the people who are boasting about their incredible experiences of God who are the ones who are actually having the true visions and the true revelations. Perhaps rather those among us who are really close to Jesus are the quiet and the humble ones who care more about being near to God than impressing others. People like the Virgin Mary, who treasured up all the things the angel told her and pondered them in her heart. Paul had a revelation that was not to be shared. He heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. And the whole marvelous, miraculous experience was simply beyond human language to communicate. Perhaps even beyond Paul's brain to really comprehend. He's not even sure, was I in the body? Was I out of the body? God only knows what was happening. But even what Paul would have been able to communicate, he was not allowed to share. Whatever Paul heard, whatever Jesus told him, whatever any angel might have revealed, was for Paul's ears and for Paul's ears alone. And Paul descends back to earth with nothing to say. And so Paul only alludes to his experience. He points to it, but he doesn't describe it. In fact, he tells the story as though it had happened to someone else, not Paul himself, a man in Christ. And only by the end, by verse 5, you realize, oh, wait a second, Paul's actually talking about himself and his own experience. It's as if Paul is holding this journey to heaven, this experience at arm's length from himself. It was from God. It was an incredible divine revelation. But it would be dangerous for Paul to build his personal identity or his public persona on his journey to heaven. And therefore, he describes it, and he reflects on it as though it had happened to some third person. It's not what Paul wants to boast in. Now, he wouldn't be lying if he did. He wouldn't be making something up or exaggerating, as I assume the super apostles were prone to do. Paul, if he had shared this experience, would be uttering only the truth. But he doesn't because it would leave people falsely impressed with Paul. He refrains from sharing, he says in verse 6, so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do 
or what I say. I'm Paul. I'm standing right in front of you guys. I'm not going to appeal to some mysterious visions and revelations and experiences. Here I am. This is my message. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm doing. Judge me for what you see right in front of you. And it's not just a danger to the Corinthians. Even more, there's a danger to Paul, a real danger that this spiritual vision, this exalted, ecstatic experience of God is going to go straight to Paul's head. Paul doesn't tell us, but I am sure, I guarantee you, the moment Paul emerged from his vision, the moment he returned to earth, Satan was there, whispering in Paul's ear, tempting him to pride. The third heaven. I don't even know anyone who's been to the first heaven. I've been to the third heaven, to the paradise of God, where Jesus shared stuff with me no one else is allowed to know about. I'm holding these divine heavenly secrets. I must be a very, very special person. Heights do funny things to people's minds. And we turn and we look down and we suddenly feel this dizzying vertigo and we lose our balance and we plunge over the edge. And Paul's exaltation to heaven was a moment of great spiritual danger. You know in the game Snakes and Ladders, a very old Indian game, I believe, you get up to space 96, 97, 98, and there's a very long snake there that takes you all the way down to the first row. And perhaps it's in our moments of being closest to God or immediately after those moments when we emerge from them that we're most vulnerable to being tempted to satanic pride. And therefore, Paul's given a very strange gift. Therefore, he tells us in verse 7, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Now, I could spend the rest of my message laying out different options for the thorn in the flesh. It has intrigued people for a long time. John Chrysostom and the early church interpreters tended to view the thorn in the flesh as Paul's enemies in Corinth. Medieval Catholic interpreters, not surprisingly, pointed towards sexual temptation. A lot of more recent commentators look at physical ailments. Perhaps it was some issue with Paul's eyes or a speech impediment. Lingering effects of malaria is one thing that has been offered. We don't know. We can only speculate. We can only guess at what Paul's issue was. He knew. Probably the Corinthians knew. We do not. What we do know from 2 Corinthians 12 is that this thorn, whatever it was, was a chronic, painful, and debilitating affliction. And perhaps it's the grace of God that we don't know exactly what it is. So that all of us in this church who have our own painful, chronic, debilitating conditions can take Paul's lessons and apply them to ourselves. 
it was a messenger from Satan who tormented Paul. And it was very clear soon after Paul began to experience this affliction that there was something evil and something demonic about the thorn pressing into his flesh. And Paul began to pray, to pray fervently and urgently for deliverance. You know what's strange, though? In in verse 7, clearly describes Satan's activity. But if we read carefully, we can perceive there's a second and greater agency behind Satan's. Someone else who is at work in this whole process. Because Paul uses the passive voice, this thorn was given to me to keep me from being conceited. Whatever Satan's aim was, it was not to keep Paul from being conceited. He wanted Paul to be conceited. Someone else has given this for Paul's ultimate protection from spiritual danger. And that, of course, is God himself. Satan's at work. Behind and above Satan, God is also at work. For two different ends, Satan working to torment and destroy Paul, God working to protect and ultimately to bless Paul in his sovereignty. It makes us think, of course, of the Old Testament story of Job, even more of the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob thrown into a pit, sold as a slave by his brothers, spending years in prison, being falsely accused. And then when his brothers finally come down to Egypt to get food, and they're afraid Joseph's going to destroy them, he tells them, you meant this for evil. God meant this for good. And our Father is continually restraining and channeling and redirecting the malice of the evil one. He wants to kill, destroy, torment. God is redirecting all of that, working all things for your good. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than in the cross of Christ himself. What seemed to be the hour of darkness, the victory of evil, the triumph of Satan, turned out to be the salvation of the world. The same thing at a smaller level is true of Paul and his thorn. Although it took him a lot longer to see the hand of God than to see the hand of Satan, in his affliction. Three times, just like Jesus in Gethsemane, Paul prays for God to remove the thorn. And Paul was not wrong to pray this prayer. Jesus does not rebuke him for asking for the thorn to be removed. It's natural and it's healthy and it's good that we pray for a father for healing And for deliverance for all the thorns that have filled this world since the Garden of Eden. And I want to be really clear this afternoon as we think about sickness and suffering and affliction. In themselves, those things are not good. 
They're not God's design. They're not God's plan. And if we're not grieving and lamenting over our own pain and over other people's pain, we're not being like Jesus who wept over the tomb of Lazarus, who bellowed in anger at the devastation that the curse has wrought in our world. And it's true that God does and he will use all those things for good, but in themselves, they are not good. And so we pray for deliverance. It was not sinful for Paul to pray for the thorn to be removed. No more sinful than it was for Jesus to pray three times for the cup of suffering to be removed from him as he sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane. We pray for healing. We pray for deliverance out of faith and out of obedience to Jesus following his example. It's not sinful. So long as we also pray with Jesus, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And there are some name it and claim it, word of faith type of people who would, who would almost rebuke Paul for his lack of faith and perseverance. Paul, this amazingly gifted man, so close to God, filled with all these gifts of the Spirit, if anyone would have the faith and the power to heal himself, to claim God's blessing, to seize the promise of healing, you would think it would be Paul. Why does Paul not persevere in taking hold of the healing that is his right as a child of God? And these people tend to see prayer not as communion with God and an expression of trust in our Father, but as a kind of magical incantation where if you have the right formula and the right set of steps and the right attitude, the right mental attitude, we can actually force God to do what we want. Not your will, Father, but mine be done. You must do what I basically command you to do by faith. And my will, of course, is always to escape weakness, to escape suffering, to escape affliction, to escape pain, and to escape hardship. Is it always God's will to heal? It is. But when and how is not ours to decide. And in faith, we place that in God's hands, trusting to his love and his wisdom to do what is best for us. And as we go through life, we will learn there are many tears that will only be wiped away when we stand face to face with Jesus. So we pray for healing for ourselves and for each other. And we need to pray with more fervency and more perseverance and more faith. But we always add, Father, if it is your will. 
Real faith is not saying, I trust that God will heal me. It's saying, I trust God, period. I trust Jesus. I'm letting my hands go of my healing and my deliverance and when and how it happens. And I have very positive ideas of, as to how and when it should happen. And I surrender that into the hands of Jesus, trusting that the one who was crucified for me is not going to neglect me. He's not going to forget me. He's not going to torment me needlessly. But the wise physician will give me the medicine I need and only the medicine I need. Paul prayed three times. I assume these were three intense seasons of prayer. And then Jesus himself answered Paul's prayers, and he answered those prayers in a surprising way. Paul had a second revelation. There's two revelations from Jesus in this chapter. This is the one that Paul is permitted to share. Verse 9. He, that is the Lord, Jesus himself, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, the great apostle Paul, needed to learn as you and I need to learn that our true sufficiency is not in ourselves. It's in Christ himself. You know, we cling so ferociously to the flimsy raft of our own strength. My imagined ability to control my own destiny, to be the master of my own fate, to handle things on my own with no help from nobody. And that's what human beings have tried to do ever since we cut ourselves off from the source of life that is our creator. That is the essence of human sin. And that is the way of death. And in his love, not because he wants to torment you or he wants you to suffer, in his love, Jesus wants to save you from the delusion of saving yourself. And he wants to bring you into total dependence on himself. Because that is where true life is. You know what? In my pride, I imagine that my strengths are what attract God and my weaknesses are what repel him. I have a mental list of my assets and my liabilities. I'm ashamed and embarrassed of my liabilities even before God. And I want to point to all the things that I'm good at and all the ways that I feel capable. And surely that is where the grace and power of God are going to meet me and make me fruitful and successful. Actually, it's the opposite. Your weaknesses do not repel the grace and power of God. They attract the grace and power of God. 
Someone told me years ago, your weakness is not an indictment, it's an invitation. Your weakness is not an indictment. God is not angry at you because you're not good at certain things or you don't have the abilities and capacities of other people around you. Your weakness is not an indictment, much as you perceive it to be, much as other people are telling you. It is an invitation. God invites you to lean on him. You know, our strengths and our gifts, even from God, can so easily feed the delusion that we can handle things on our own. We take the gift, we reject the giver, and our very gifts can be what hold Christ at arm's length. But actually, it's your, your weaknesses, your painful awareness of inadequacy and even failure, those actually open up space for Jesus himself to come into your heart, to inhabit your life, to manifest grace and power in you and through you. And the very thorn pressing into Paul's flesh was what was pinning him to Christ. God's means of working, David Black writes, is not by making people stronger, as we all naturally pray for. God's means of working is not by making people stronger, but weaker and weaker, until the divine power alone is seen in them. Is that what we long for? Is our deepest desire for the grace, the power, the presence of Jesus to be living in us and shining forth from us? Or is what we really want to be left alone to our own devices, handling things on our own? Weakness creates that space. And the journey of Christian maturity is leading us deeper and deeper into a profound experience of weakness in ourselves so that we can know the power of the resurrection in our lives. And, you know, we assume that our weakness, our multiple sclerosis, our childlessness, our singleness, our anxiety disorder, whatever your weakness is, we assume that because it handicaps us, it also handicaps God. And we feel frustrated, like, ah, oh, God, if only I didn't have this issue, if only I didn't have this disorder, if you would just take this away, I would be so much more fruitful in your service. If only I had some strength, but I feel so weak and so small and so useless. That's by divine design. And it's by the grace of Jesus. Because God does not want your life to point to your own sufficiency. Your own incredible gifts, your own amazing capacity, your ability to master and to dominate your circumstances. God wants your life to point to the transforming glory of Jesus. 
And how can your life possibly point to the transforming glory of Jesus if you're just handling everything fine on your own? Remember the fourth chapter of this letter? We have this treasure in jars of clay, Paul writes, to show that the surpassing power is from God and not from us. If I do life and if I do ministry out of my obvious strengths and gifts and abilities, as we all naturally prefer to do, to operate in our place of strength, then very naturally I will be the one who gets the credit for whatever fruit comes out of that. But when I trust in Jesus and begin to do things that are beyond my ability, I reach out in faith and begin to do the things that I cannot do. When I stretch out my withered hand in obedience to the command of Jesus, when there is no fleshly explanation for what happens next, then God and God alone gets the glory. Is that what you desire with your life? Are you willing to have a withered hand so that you can stretch it out in faith for Jesus? That is what we're being offered by the Spirit. Some of you may remember a couple of students who graduated two or three years ago now, Ankit and Dadson, and they went on a trip to Turkey together. They wanted to go to this conference in Istanbul, I think. They took the bus from Tbilisi to Istanbul. Can you imagine that journey? And they had basically no money. They had a bank card, and they only had like less than 100 gel in the bank account, but they went in faith, trusting that God would provide. And they would go into restaurant after restaurant, and when the time came to pay the bill, Dadson, to be honest, was too scared. He would go outside and watch through the window so he could run away if something happened. And Ankit would pull out his, his debit card. And somehow, there would never be insufficient funds, and the bill would always be paid. And again and again, they were fed out of an empty bank account. I'm sure going into that trip, they would much rather have had bulging wallets and very full bank accounts, but then they would never have had that experience of the Father's heavenly provision. And we're such foolish children because we twist and we writhe to avoid being put in a place where we have to depend on God. I hate that feeling. It makes me very nervous when I'm not in control of things. But this is why Paul boasted in his weakness he boasted in how small his bank account was. Because more than anything, Paul wanted to experience the power, the grace, and the presence of Jesus in his life and ministry. And he wanted the glory to ascend to Christ alone. It's funny, there are two revelations of Jesus that Paul references in our passage. A revelation of the throne, a revelation of the thorn. 
but in only one are the words of Jesus given to us. And it's not the revelation we would assume would be the one that would bless us and benefit us. We do not yet need the revelation of the throne, but we desperately need the revelation of the thorn, to hear the voice of our Good Shepherd speaking to us here and now in our suffering, our sickness, our chronic diseases, our smallness, and our inadequacies. We need to hear Jesus assuring each of us, I am with you. I have not abandoned you. I am more present than you realize. And my grace is filling up your emptiness, and my power is present in your weakness. Power and weakness, the strange paradox of the gospel. And Paul is not describing for us some advanced spiritual technique that is centered on ourselves. It's not for me, it's not for my sake. No, verse 10, it's for Christ's sake and for Christ's sake alone that I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong for Christ's sake. Apart from Jesus, embracing weakness makes no sense, apart from Jesus. But when we truly encounter the Lord, the Spirit changes our hearts so that our deepest desire is not mastery, control, domination. It's knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And if that means embracing the weakness of the cross, if that means following the master wherever he leads, then by his grace, by his power, by the spirit, we will do so because we consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cry out to you in our weakness. Our weakness, which fills us with shame and inadequacy and a sense of worthlessness, And we're so grateful that our weakness does not repel you. And you reach down and you embrace us in our creatureliness, in our sinfulness, in our failure. And you sent your son to descend to the cross for our sakes. Lord, show us what it means to experience the sufficiency of your grace to experience the power of your resurrection in our weakness. And we confess this is a mystery 
we can only dimly perceive what Paul is teaching us, what your spirit is teaching us in this passage, O Lord. And oh, our flesh resists it. We want to be strong. We want to be capable. But that is not where Jesus is, and we want to be where he is. So give us your spirit, good Father, and transform us so that we might have the faith to follow Christ wherever he leads and experience his presence wherever he is. In his gracious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond in worship. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.